Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 14, June 21st through June 27th, 1861. Last week, we talked about a few skirmishes in the early part of the war and introduced Ulysses S. Grant. This week is one of those weeks where we are still building up Uh, about to get to the start of the campaign that will culminate in the first battle of bull run or first manassas Uh, so we're still getting there logistics are going to be an important part of armies during this period and will take a long time to form up and train the inexperienced troops so let's get into a few things this week before uh, we get more into some tactics Uh, as well as uh, going over some uh, finer parts of cavalry and artillery as well. It says we haven't really got too far into either of those, so uh, that's sort of how the makeup of this week is going to go. Um, But here for our first event, uh, by June 27th uh, in 1861, there would be some 40,000 men gathered in Washington, uh, which is a far cry from the handful of militia and small numbers of U.S. regulars at the start of the conflict. And uh, you will remember uh, from our earlier episodes that the lack of uh, men to defend Washington was definitely uh, a problem and certainly something that was on the mind of Abraham Lincoln, uh, especially when Virginia decides to throw its lot in with the Confederacy. This illustrates that early in the war, enlistment really isn't a problem, though. Easy to find willing young men who were eager to see the elephant, uh, as it were. Uh, That was going to be uh, an early trend in terms of recruitment. Later in the war, it would be more difficult to fill the ranks, and uh, thus both Union and Confederate uh, governments will resort to conscription as well as a draft system. But we'll get into that when we cross that bridge uh, a little bit later here. I think also with the buildup of troops, we we sort of see ourselves on this uh, steady path toward a a big opening uh, battle, opening conflict here, right? Uh, The more troops that are gathering in these various places, uh, the more that the both Union and the Confederacy will want to use those men Irvin McDowell will continue to argue that the Green Troops would not be ready uh, for this, this opening salvo, uh, but there was, there was going to be little that he could do. They would be sent into the fields of Virginia, whether they were ready or not. But uh, again, we're not quite there yet, so stay tuned. Let's talk about the tactics that will be used by those Green Troops on both sides. When we looked at the Civil War, really, I think... When we look at, say, the Revolution or the Napoleonic era, it can be a little tough for us to understand why soldiers would form into lines and stand across a field and take turns firing at each other. The increases in military technology will change this before the end, sure, but let's get into the why before we go more in-depth with specifics. You would move in tighter formations because it was easier to keep cohesion on the battlefield uh, this way. 
concentrating fire with a larger force would be the easiest way one could defeat the enemy. Once they were sufficiently reduced with this rate of fire, a, a bayonet charge would destroy the remainder. So to accomplish this would require hours of drill and training. Men would need to move from column four deep to a line of two ranks 16 inches apart. Regiments would be kept according to military manuals 20 yards apart and brigades 25 yards apart. Often regiments would advance one after another if assaulting the enemy. If you were in the first regiment, well, then your job was to soak up the enemy fire. The exception in this would be skirmishers and ahead of your larger body of men to maintain contact with the enemy and provide a warning for incoming troops. Often these men would be farther apart and use any available cover. We should explore a little about some of the influences for strategy during the Civil War. Napoleon, of course, was someone many generals emulated as the French military was considered to be the best in the world, and we are not too far off from the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon's strategies would come to the United States in the form of Antoine Henri Jomini, a Swiss aide to the great general. West Pointers would definitely have read Jomini, Concentrating on smaller forces with a superior force was Napoleon's bread and butter. Often, he would be facing opposing armies piecemeal, taking them one at a time and, and you know defeating them one after the other. So that's, that's really why he's able to take on these, these larger forces uh, and still be victorious. He also advocated for strong interior lines, which refers to your logistical lines of supply, communication, movement of your armies. Basically, within an enclosed space, they're going to be shorter and safer and you know, more effective on the battlefield. Tied into this would also be the teaching that your army would have to be able to maneuver and do so quickly. Turning movements such as attacking the flank were also certainly uh, something that Napoleon really enjoyed uh, there are a lot of big, wide flanking attacks, and that's going to uh, also be the case in the Civil War because, you know, these, these generals are going to be one to be like Napoleon. Rather than face your enemy head-on, this would force them to adjust and thus wipe out their original plan. We also have Karl von Clausewitz, who was probably not as widely known as the Swiss aide. The Prussian Clausewitz had served in the Napoleonic armies and wrote a book called On War in 1832. His views were slightly different. The emphasis was more on politics than actual battlefield strategy. War, he argued, was an affair of the people, and political goals we will see move gradually into strategy. So basically, we need to keep the home front happy if we're going to wage a successful war. An army that could defeat the enemy and avoid self-exhaustion would be needed, as well as the prevention of foreign intervention. Defense was also critical for Clausewitz. There's also a notion of absolute war or total war, but it is not a finished thought 
in On War, uh, the book that Clausewitz writes. Total War would become to be uh, compared, certainly, with Sherman's March to the Sea, but I've seen it argued that the types of all-encompassing war in the 1860s is not the same as this, as this concept. For instance, we can see in World War II where civilians are targeted, uh, you know, certainly in the case of, say, uh, the Japanese in, in, uh, in China or uh, certainly the bombing of civilians uh, in Europe as well. Um, that is a case where we could say this is, this is a total war, uh, but it is not really so in the American Civil War. So uh, it's, a, it's just a tad different. Dennis H. Mahan, a professor at West Point, would also play a role with influencing generals. His concepts revolved around the fact that on the battlefield there was going to be incomplete information, and the difference would be the swiftness of making decisions with the information that one was provided. So there are a lot of uh, officers who will become generals in the war who studied uh, under, under uh, Mahan at West Point who are going to definitely emulate this. During the war, both Clausewitz and Jomini would be used by both sides. Overall, though, we can sum up the Confederate strategy as defensive and the Union strategy as offensive, choking off supplies of the enemy, occupying main cities when necessary, but more focused on destruction of the rebel armies. I've heard it argued that the Confederates may have been better off withdrawing forces to concentrate in certain areas, but that this was something that, politically, Jefferson Davis, uh, he, he certainly couldn't do that, right? He can't just abandon North Carolina and expect them to still send uh, their, their men to, uh, to serve the cause, right? But it's worth noting that Robert E. Lee would be using these flanking tactics as well. You know, that we, we talked about those, these big flanking tactics that, uh, that Napoleon liked to use. Uh, so he's going to use those several times, and we'll see those in battles to come. Lincoln and the Union forces would draw off inspiration from Clausewitz, as we'll see military success go hand-in-hand -hand with the eventual Emancipation Proclamation, right? So they are going to be using that uh, toward the war effort, right? Um, I know that we have sort of briefly got into this discussion uh, in an earlier episode, but sort of this this uh, freeing of the of the slaves, you know, it's more at the time uh, seemed as a, a necessary part of uh, eventually putting the country back together, you know, defeating the South. Just briefly, let's talk some military lingo. Already, we have talked about the flank attack and a common strategy of turning the flank or getting around the enemy line. When performing a flanking maneuver, it would be good if your enemy had a flank in the air or that it was unprotected, right? If you were being flanked, you could refuse your line or bend back to meet the flanking action. So think about like in a shape of sort of like an L, right? You're bending back to, to meet the threat. You can even set up that way by attacking in an oblique order or having a stronger flank or already refusing your flank. So you could have that as a formation moving forward. A term we may use is enfilade fire. Once you have successfully flanked your enemy, you can fire along its longest axis. Defilade fire, you're using cover 
whether natural or man-made to conceal yourself. Should be noted that reverse slope of a hill would classify under this uh, something that was used against Napoleon at Waterloo. You can have an indirect approach, which could go hand-in-hand -hand with a holding attack. Indirect approach is more that you are showing in force at one point on the enemy line, uh, but you're really attacking somewhere else. A holding attack does exactly what it sounds. You're holding the enemy in place so that something else can happen. For defense, if you defend in depth, you are delaying the enemy so you can buy some time. Those are not really the only terms that uh, maybe we will come across moving forward, but that's a pretty good starting point for us to, to understand when we're talking about some of these battles, so uh, they're definitely going to be important. Moving on from tactics, I think we can segue into cavalry. Cavalry, as we have already briefly mentioned, was used for reconnaissance, screening movement, and guard duties. When you read about cavalry in the Napoleonic Wars, the role is very different. Maybe even more akin to the role of mounted knights in the Middle Ages. Mass cavalry charges against foot soldiers, forming square for protection. This will evolve even before the Civil War breaks out. Before 1860, there were only two regiments of cavalry in the U.S. Army posted in the West. A large amount of officers in these regiments were from the South. 104 out of 176 would serve in the Confederate States of America. Why was this? Well, there could be a variety of reasons. It was rumored that Jefferson Davis, while Secretary of War, promoted his Southern friends to roles in the cavalry regiments. Cavalry also fitted the role of your chivalric knight that might have coincided with Southern values. Whatever the reason, the Union was at a severe disadvantage when the war began. Cavalry would be centralized in the Confederate Army, which will be adopted later by Union forces. Add that to the fact that cavalry was not as heavily recruited because the prevailing theory was that it took two years to properly train an effective cavalry trooper. So, remember that... The war it was not going to last as long as it as it as it ends up going. So it's not uh, something that is on the minds of of these folks who are planning the war effort. So you know if if the it's going to take two years for us to actually go through and train somebody properly, you know it's not going to last that long. So we don't we don't need to train them. Uh, we don't need that. Mounts for the U.S. cavalry were provided by the government as well. So that's you know that's obviously a cost, right? Uh, so it's going to be money. Confederates would provide their own horses. Still, by the end of the war, 272 regiments would be formed for the Union and 137 for the Confederacy. A cavalry regiment is organized a little different than an infantry regiment. In the Union Army, 12 troops of 100 men would form a regiment commanded by a colonel. Troops were commanded by captains, with two lieutenants. The Confederate Army would have ten companies or squadrons to a regiment, numbering a little less, probably somewhere between 60 and 80 men. As mentioned, the regiments would be formed into brigades. 
Horse artillery or lighter artillery attached to cavalry brigades were common. Cavalrymen on both sides would initially be issued with pistol and saber. However, as the war progressed, they would turn more toward carbines and, if possibly, repeating rifles. Emphasis on revolvers also grew during the war, and that's something that we mentioned when we talked about uh, armaments in that segment. Mosby's partisan rangers carried as many as four. While cavalry charges and mounting fighting were possible, cavalry often dismounted to fight and serve as mobile infantry. If there was to be a saber charge, it would be conducted in columns of four. There would be some good examples of cavalry charges during the war, especially if cavalry was facing off against enemy cavalry, like in the battles of Brandy Station. But more on that in the future. Since we have now had a more in-depth look at cavalry, let's take a look at artillery in depth. For today, to be clear, we will be looking specifically at field artillery. That is the artillery used to support infantry and cavalry in the field, such as, say, in a battle scenario. In the Civil War, the Navy used a lot of different types of vessels, and the same can be said of artillery. Uh, There were a wide variety of types. Let me tell you, I have learned the hard way that one can get lost down the rabbit hole of the different types of artillery, something that may be a unique problem to myself, I suppose, but we are going to narrow the scope here for simplistic sake. What may not be so simple, though, is that in our discussion here of how to fire a cannon in the Civil War. may surprise you to note that it takes at least five, maybe even eight individuals in your artillery crew which I know is particularly surprising because in your plastic toy soldier sets, you usually get like one guy who has like a rammer or something, and uh, that's, that's, that's what you get in your, in your set there, right? So pretty misleading if I do say so myself. Anyway, let's talk about it. The members are numbered, so everyone should know their job. The number three man would clean the vent on the base of the barrel of the gun and then hold the covering with his thumb, to prevent oxygen igniting the piece. A leather thumb covering was used in this case. The number two man would clear the barrel of debris using a corkscrew-looking instrument. Number one will wet a sponge and clean the barrel in case there are any glowing embers. Number two then steps forward with a dry sponge to clean the barrel. Should be noted that the poles for these instruments would not be gripped using the thumb in case the piece fired accidentally, so that you're not uh, missing a thumb after that, right? Number six gives the next round in a leather pouch to number five, who will take the round to the artillery sergeant, who checks to make sure it is correct. Number five gives the round to number two, who loads into the barrel. Number one will ram the round down the barrel. The sergeant would aim the piece, adjusting the elevation. Number three would use a hand spike to move left or right. Number three then pricks the powder and then inserts the friction primer. This, when pulled, would uh, cause sparks, igniting the powder. Once given the command to fire, number four will pull the lanyard. Something not usually depicted in movies is that there will be recoil on the artillery piece, So before we start all of that, we would have to roll back into position. Artillery may 
retreat by recoil in certain instances during the war, aka they will move back uh, as the piece uh, fires, right? So that to use that momentum to, to move backward. Artillery pieces usually had a caisson and a limber. The caisson carried an ammunition chest with two wheels looking like a small carriage. The limber would also carry an ammunition chest. Six horse teams would pull the limber and cannon as well as a limber and caisson. Either combination weighed close to 4,000 pounds. Now that we know how the artillery is fired, let's take a look at what you would fire. Now, for the purposes of this discussion, let's briefly just mention that there are two main types of field artillery, smoothbore and rifled. If you remember the episode we talked about the difference, rifling made, it's essentially the same deal. Spin is going to make for better accuracy. We will start with shell and shot. Shot does not contain an explosive charge. For smooth bores, it would be the classical picture of a round cannonball. In a rifle piece, it would be called a bolt. It could be used to destroy enemy artillery or caissons, uh, what have you. Alternatively, it could also be used against infantry or cavalry as a fairly strong psychological weapon. A shell for smoothbores, a spherical shell, would contain an explosive shot. These would contain a timed fuse that would explode into fragments. While not particularly useful against stone, you could use it against earthworks or wooden buildings. We have three types of anti-personnel ordnance. Case or shrapnel would explode over an exposed enemy, showering fragments called shrapnel over them. Shrapnel is actually named after Henry Shrapnel, who invented the shell after serving in the Royal Artillery in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Canister and grape shot were also used against enemy infantry and cavalry. We can imagine both of these making the cannon into a giant shotgun. Canister would be a thin cylinder containing iron or lead balls that would fly in an effective range of 400 yards. Grape shot was originally used for naval purposes and would clear rigging of the enemy. The difference is that there were larger and fewer metal balls separated by iron plates. All of these were certainly deadly options available. Now that we have looked at what you fire, let's take a look at different types of artillery pieces. Similar to our conversation about small arms, the poundage on an artillery piece would refer to the barrel and ordnance size. For example, the most common and I think most iconic Civil War artillery piece was the 12-pound Napoleon. Most of these, like if you go to any Civil War battlefield, you're probably looking at a Napoleon at some point. They would, of course, fire a 12-pound shot. Rifled options would vary. The most common was the 3-inch ordnance rifle. Parrot rifles of the 10 and 20 pound variety were also common. 12 pound Whitworth rifles are my favorite Civil War cannon. The reason being uh, these were British made and they were not widely used. Uh, instead of loading through the barrel, they were breech loaders. 
So a sort of prelude to the artillery used in the world wars. Howitzers were another option. These were shorter barrels and would fire with a higher trajectory. You could find these in 12, 24, or 32 pound. Besides these types, there are also some experimental pieces that would pop up, like a double-barreled cannon, for instance, uh, but they would not be widely used, if at all. Now that you learned more than you probably thought you would about Civil War-era field artillery, we can go ahead and pause there. I know we had a lighter week in terms of events, but we actually covered a lot that will be important as we progress. Tactics are important to understand, and while we have covered fairly well the role of the infantry, we have now had good conversations about cavalry and artillery. Next week, we'll catch up on what Thomas Jackson has been up to, and I will have maybe an overdue snapshot of the experience of slaves in America during this time. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the Patreon and as well as Venmo information and the website. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be welcomed. Once again, feedback is appreciated. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Questions, comments, concerns. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week. <laughs>